Welcome to PRPG News, where the line between reality and fiction gets fuzzy. Well, welcome to the Pulse Rifles and Plasma Grenades February news update. I do a really cool voice, but I'm coming down with something right now, so this was a struggle to record. But hey, I figured we needed to put something out there. I don't know with me coming down and my work schedule next week when we're going to get around to doing the next episode. That is the next normal, full, regularly scheduled. Do we have a regular schedule? We don't have a regular schedule. But the next full episode, not one of these little offshoots like the news. We've got two in the works. One, a bunch of grunts want to get together and talk about why it sucks being a stormtrooper in a red shirt. Um, and then we've got the uh, normal cast that wants to discuss military technology in sci-fi and vice versa. On uh, this episode, the February episode, the news, we're going to have a couple of guests discuss different articles. I'm going to cover Disney Star Wars video games and the status of the Starship Troopers franchise. JV's going to come in and talk about uh, some crazy-looking bullpup shotguns from the company that brought us the Tavor rifle. Manchild will discuss how AI will influence future warfare. Again, apologize if I sound a little out of it. I am coming down with something, but we're working to keep content going. And before we get started with the actual news articles, there's a brief little bit of news I'd like to share about the show. Um, we were mentioned at the beginning of one of the recent episodes of the Star Wars Report because I wrote a very hastily put together, way too overly wordy, nerdy, war college type letter about Star Destroyer orbital bombardments. But hey, we got a positive mention and I really enjoyed that. Note to the audience, don't try and draft an email with voice-to-text while you're driving. It gets cumbersome. You know, little lesson learned there. Keep your eyes on the road and wait to get home to send it so you can actually review it one final time so it isn't so poorly put together. Israeli Weapons Industries has come out with a fantastic new shotgun. Called the TS-12, it's in a bullpup configuration. And besides the awesome sci-fi look to it, it also has a lot of really interesting features that aren't seen on many guns today. It is semi-auto, but instead of having a traditional magazine that, for a bullpup, would slide into the rear of the gun, it has three magazines and is loaded from the side of the gun. Each magazine can hold a total of either four 3-inch shells or five 2-and-3-quarter-inch shells giving you maximum capacity of 15 rounds, plus one in the chamber. When one magazine is spent, another can be easily snapped into place simply by twisting the barrel underneath the gun. As soon as the new magazine is in place, it automatically feeds a new round into the chamber. The TS-12 is also ambidextrous. You can even change which side of the gun spent casings eject from. So overall... This is an absolutely fantastic gun that looks like it's pulled straight out of a sci-fi novel. Even aside from the sci-fi looks, this gun has a lot of unique features that really bring a punch to the modern battlefield. AI in Warfare The U.S. military is quite keen on adapting artificial intelligence for military purposes despite the plethora of AI antagonists portrayed in media. Recently, the military took an unexpected turn and hired an AI to assist with running war games. So, how does a computer get hired to help run military training scenarios? 
fans of the 1983 movie War Games will be disappointed. They found it playing poker. That's right, one of the games we all turned to when there wasn't anything to do in the barracks or on ship. They hired a 2017 Texas Hold'em tournament champion named Labartus. Card games are the military's best way to spend downtime, right? If they want to really impress me, though, they'll get an AI that can win spades with a human partner. Why poker? It is because players need to bluff, deduce, and act on incomplete information. Libartus is well-suited to being adapted to simulate training scenarios of wartime environments. It is not ready for real-world scenarios, as there are entirely too many variables to account for, even for an AI run on a supercomputer. In training, the scenarios are much more calculated, and Libartus may be able to offer insights humans may not see. Just don't let it play tic-tac-toe. Friends, then, the winning not to brag. That was a great report by Manchild about the U.S. military's first forays into artificial intelligence and uh, snickered a little bit at the uh, War Games bit at the end there. To follow up, the Pentagon actually released its first AI strategy on Tuesday. To quote a little bit from the Marine Corps Times article covering the same topic, the plan called for accelerating the use of AI systems throughout the military from intelligence gathering operations to predicting maintenance problems in planes or ships. It urged the U.S. to advance such technology swiftly before other countries chip away at its technological advantage. China and Russia are making significant investments in AI for military purposes, including applications that raise questions regarding international norms and human rights. The report did also mention autonomous weapons, but it cited a 2012 military directive that requires humans to be in control. Frankly, autonomous weapons scare the tar out of me. I'm not even all that comfortable with drone warfare myself. The U.S. and Russia are among a handful of nations that have blocked efforts by the U.N. for an international ban of killer robots. Sorry, an international ban on killer robots. Fully autonomous weapon systems that could one day conduct war without human intervention. The U.S. has argued that it's premature to try and regulate them. <laughs> Convenient. Yes, so uh, the strategy unveiled by the Defense Department this week focused on immediate applications, but it has sparked some ethical debates. But not to really belabor the point, because Manchild covered it pretty well, AI is coming. Now on to our next story. Recently, at a quarterly earnings call, Disney CEO Bob Iger confirmed that they are going to continue leaving Star Wars publishing rights to game companies like EA, rather than attempt to produce them in-house. If you are like me and have played a lot of Star Wars video games over the past 30-40 years or so, you will remember quite fondly the LucasArts publishing company, which has put out fantastic games like Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic, Force Unleashed, any Star Wars game really, a number of Indiana Jones games, Monkey Island, Sam and Max, Full Throttle, Grim Fandango. LucasArts could not fail at one point. They were just pumping out award-winning game after award-winning game. After the sale to Disney, Disney decided to shut down LucasArts and rather license out because of their own internal failures, really, with game publishing. Can't blame them. They know their strengths. They know their weaknesses. 
game publishing was never a Disney strength. Unfortunately, that really led to the demise of LucasArts as a publishing house and just became a licensing feature for companies like EA. EA currently has exclusive publishing rights for Star Wars titles through 2023. This has caused a lot of ire amongst the fan base um, due to their handling of the Battlefront series and constant canceling of projects that fans were looking forward to, like 1313, and they recently announced they were killing one of the sandbox worlds they were developing. Star Wars fans are rabid animals sometimes, and we tend to get to be rabid animals about video games even more so, holding dearly onto things like Force Unleashed and Knights of the Old Republic. Uh, there are huge communities that attempted to mod uh, newer versions of Knights of the Old Republic games and reskin them. One of them recently was given a cease and desist letter for a nonprofit effort they were working. While we are looking to see Star Wars Jedi The Fallen Order launching later this fall, uh, there were a number of other projects that have been canceled along the way, and I don't know that we're all really quite comfortable with where EA is going. EA earned an incredible amount of ire over their Battlefront 2 pay-to-win system that hampered the initial launch of the game significantly. They got a lot of flack from Battlefront 1 for not having a campaign, which they did incorporate in Battlefront 2. Now, the campaign in Battlefront 2 was pretty, pretty good. And if you go and play Battlefront 2 now, they've updated a lot of content that has made the game much more enjoyable. They incorporated, incorporated Geonosis, General Kenobi, and General Grievous recently, which a lot of fans feel that it took a, you know, a year or two for them to actually make the game what they wanted it on release. They've made amends since then, but EA is going to have to work very hard to rebuild the trust with the Star Wars gaming community, uh, a trust that they burned quite significantly with their Battlefront and Battlefront 2 efforts. Only now, two years later after the game was released, does the fan base really feel that Battlefront 2 was what was promised back in 2017, now that they've released uh, significant epic battles like Geonosis and characters like Kenobi and Grievous did away with their pay-to-win system that was originally implemented in the game. They took a lot of heat for it, and the Star Wars gaming community loves its single-player games more than it really loves its online games. There are still people that played the original Battlefront and Battlefront 2 prior to the EA era. Honestly, most of us are just looking for some really good RTSs or single-player games, and I don't know that we're ever going to see them anymore because... The 12-year-olds of the world really like playing online shooters, as evidenced by the overwhelming popularity of Fortnite. Time will tell to see what good games we get. Subhunting? Use your pals. Ever wonder how militaries detect submarines? There are various methods, from sonar you've seen depicted in various films and media, depth charges and other pyrotechnics, to finding variances with Earth's magnetic field using a magnetic anomaly detector. The U.S. military isn't happy, or happy enough, with those methods of finding a sub, however, which is why they launched the Persistent Aquatic Living Sensors, or PALS, project. It is a $45 million project that will genetically modify sea organisms to emit an electrical signal when they detect a molecule that is not native in their oceanic environments. This could be any number of substances, from exhaust from a diesel-powered submarine, materials in divers' equipment, to explosive substances used in sea-based mines. The electrical signals will be picked up by sensors, which will be compared to nearby sensors, 
in order to determine false positives and relayed to a command center. The PALS program may be very useful in determining the location of underwater covert operations, from submarines to diving teams. I just hope that releasing these organisms into the wild will not harm ecosystems that they are deployed to. I debated whether or not to include this next piece as I was aware of the IG investigation that occurred late in 2018 regarding this particular issue, although I was not directly involved with it and I was aware of it. It's an important thing, so I decided to go ahead and talk about it anyways. So, how is this sci-fi? Well, in sci-fi we see a lot of times guys going high speed, low drag with their heads up displays, and this has been the military's attempt to incorporate that capability uh, on a personal, individual, small unit scale with tablets or smartphones using programs like Kill Switch or uh, ATAC. The applications have been a progression in the lineage of Blue Force Tracker and some older systems that used to be vehicle mounted in order to give commanders on the field a more real-time update on where everybody was positioned, where the friendlies were. That's why it was called Blue Force Tracker back in the day. So we're not quite to that crazy heads-up display type scenario that we see in sci-fi all the time, and we're getting there slowly. But the Navy, Marine Corps, and the Army and I think probably the Air Force, I would assume the Air Force has also developed similar technologies as well. Uh, these are for use on the ground in order to do targeting, mission planning, and things like that. And it's a really great piece of software, and it's a cool technology, and it's a way where that sci-fi piece is coming into the battlefield here. However, we have a problem, and the problem is a lot of Marines in particular, as the report goes on, uh, we're loading the software onto their personal phones and equipments and using them in the tactical space or in training, which is not permitted. Now, the real big cyber vulnerability here is that their devices aren't secure. So Lance Corporal Schmuckatelli or Lieutenant What's-His-Nuts that has, you know, their personal Android phone with, you know, Fortnite side-loaded onto it um, decides to load this software, which is a government piece of software, onto their phone so they can do some training or mission planning with it because they weren't able to get the piece of equipment fielded fast enough or, you know, we weren't able to get out enough of them. Uh, they feel that, you know, things were falling short, so they decided to take it upon themselves to load it on their own device. Besides the ethical concerns there, there's a security concern because their phones or tablets are not as secure as the ones that are purchased by the government through proper supply channels. It's a risk. The concern there is that foreign powers like Russia or China might now have access to the source code for these sensitive government applications. Now, how is that a risk to our forces by them doing something like this? You might think it's harmless. Well, it's not. Besides the potential for the source code getting out there, if they were to decide to use their personal devices in combat situations, it could get them literally killed. Uh, according to a 2016 CBS report, Russians were able to reverse hack a phone app developed by a Ukrainian artillery officer and then use that software to inject malware and turn their application into a beacon that allowed hackers to locate the Ukrainian military positions and to affect fire on the Ukrainians that were using their homespun application. It's a danger, it's a risk. So to all my fellows out there in uniform, 
I understand you feel that acquisitions doesn't move at the speed you need, but please, I beg of you, don't sideload government applications like this onto your personal devices, even if it's just for testing and experimentation on your own or training. Use what we give you. If you don't, you could cause yourself and others harm. That's my PSA for the day. Well, that's it for the news. This took so long to put together, I'm actually feeling better now. It took us about a week. Uh, there were two other articles that we wanted to go over that didn't quite make the cut. Uh, we did cover quite a bit. I suspect those two items will end up on the uh, March news item. Uh, we didn't get to cover Genlock or some drones that the Army is testing right now. Uh, but we will get to that in the near future. We may actually cover the drones on the podcast we are probably going to get to next week. Also, um, I'd like to wrap this episode up by plugging two different web comics that friends of mine um, are working on. Uh, it is Rod and Leanne Hanna, uh, two wonderful human beings I've had the pleasure of knowing for quite a few years now. They have a webcomic some of you may actually be familiar with called Blue Milk Special, which is kind of a parody poke at Star Wars. And then they also have a new one they've just started, which probably will end up being more in our swim lane, called Heart Wired. Um, I've got the inside scoop that it will eventually turn into military sci-fi. Right now, it's a bit of a introductory phase piece, setting the baseline for the universe. But they just got it started, and I'll put the link in the show notes for both of those there. I highly recommend both Blue Milk Special, because it's funny and heartwired because I think it's going to be pretty amazing once it takes off here. All right, uh, things we've got in the works for pulse rifles and plasma grenades. Uh, like I said, we've got a couple of uh, podcasts that we have planned for the full episodes, uh, two that are under works right now, uh, just waiting for some folks to get situated. And then we are also possibly going to work on a side project, question mark? Um, it's mostly going to be me doing the side project, but I may draw in other people uh, to do some voice work. It'll be associated with, but not directly tied to the podcast. It won't be in this feed. It'll have its own separate podcast feed. It's going to be a military sci-fi radio drama? Podcast drama? I don't know. A serialized piece of entertainment. Uh, I think what we'll do is probably do an entire hour of recording edit it, chop it down to 15-minute segments, and then release 15 minutes every week just to drive you all nuts with the weight. But it's based upon a property I've been working on for a long time, about 20 years now. Uh, and it's actually the adventures of a side character who had a long history before the events in the series. So I don't feel like I'm spoiling anything by putting his story out there. I hope you all enjoyed the news, and we will see where life takes us. We'd love to put these out more and more often, not just the news, but all of the PRPG stuff. All of us involved in the podcast could talk ad nauseum forever about these things. It's just one, difficult to get us together. We're spread all over the United States, and I have more people every week wanting to get involved. It's not due to a lack of content. It's just a matter of, one, getting folks together, and two, the editing. Right now... The editing is painful. It is taking anywhere from three to four times the amount of audio recorded to do the editing. So if we put out an hour-long episode, it's taking me about four to five hours to edit. 
Um, I know that most of the folks out there in podcast land have this figured out and they don't have the problem I do. Uh, I don't know why I, I am struggling with this. If anybody has any tips, please, uh, please let me know and uh, maybe we can get past the audio editing headaches that have plagued and delayed this show ridiculously. All right, out here.